Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. For investors, there is a lot to worry about and I think for many people you feel like you've been worrying for quite a long time but there are always great ideas out there and We've spent a lot of time talking about the things to worry about. Let's talk about some of the exciting opportunities. Today I'm joined by Anthony Doyle from Firetrail, who's going to talk about how he and his team are looking through the challenges, there are many, to see the opportunities ahead. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Gemma. Thanks for having me back. It is always great to have you back. Um, I still refer to the podcast where you like broke down inflation and what's comprised or what the CPI is comprised of. It was super helpful. Yeah, now, I, didn't know, I didn't know we were going to face the world we uh, face today. Um, <laughs> certainly uh, uh, having a background in fixed income and, and inflation uh, has certainly helped me the last 12 months or so. Yeah, yeah. 20 years of, of being told what you do is boring and then all of a sudden all of the deep, dark secrets you know about inflation are super important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So I was going to say you're a macro guy. Tell us about the big issues you're seeing in markets right now. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, my background is uh, macro. I started my career as an economist before working on fixed income and currency desks um, in Dublin and London for, for over a decade before working in multi-asset um, and now I'm uh, very much a, an equity investor. Um, so I've been through a raft of asset classes and um, the, the big issues, Gemma, really um, what's uh, hit home to, to all the asset classes this year is the two eyes, I think, and we already mentioned one of them, inflation, and the other one is interest rates. And, uh, you know, we've gone through such an extraordinary period the last few years that uh, the outlook is very, very uncertain. And uh, for, for a long time, we took the word of central banks as gospel. And uh, unfortunately, they got the economic environment very, very wrong, which I think is understandable given we lived through an event and an experience that no one has ever had before in terms of shutting down economies to deal with what was and still is um, a health crisis. Um, so some of the events that occurred during the pandemic from both a monetary and fiscal stance were extraordinary and never seen before. And I think that uh, understandably, the world that we live in today, um, we're, we're still dealing with many of the, the aftershocks and after effects of some of the policies that were put in place during that extraordinary time. And uh, where we're dealing with an unfortunate hangover of very easy uh, monetary policy, you know, low interest rates, record low interest rates, and very easy fiscal policy. And the Aussies just cast their minds back to, to things like JobKeeper, for example. So uh, today, the markets, whether you look at, you're looking at equities, whether you're looking at fixed income, still big question marks over the outlook for inflation and interest rates. And when you have that uncertainty, it really breeds volatility into markets. And uh, it's a time when investors have to really go back to, to their core philosophy um, because uh, certainly I think we're living through an environment now where many of the tailwinds that existed post-GFC are potentially beginning to reverse. So what worked well in the past might not work so well in the future. That's a 
very neat summary. And it does, as you say, COVID, a pandemic, we have experienced them before, but you're going back a century for any kind of context on what that experience would have been like. And obviously the global economy is somewhat different now to what it was in 1918 uh, and then back to the 1600s. It does feel now, and particularly because you are talking about global equities primarily, like everything hinges on the Fed and other central banks, but the Fed seems to be in the driver's seat and we're obsessed over the potential for a pivot. Do you want to talk about what that means and why we're so obsessed with it? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the US is the world's dominant capital market. Um, so what the the price of capital, the, the cost of capital as set by the US Federal Reserve via interest rates is extremely important. And not only is um, the US the deepest and most dominant capital market in the world, whether you're looking at fixed income or equities, uh, the US dollar is also the world's reserve currency, meaning not only do a raft of nations peg their currency to the US dollar, not only does most of the emerging market world borrow in US dollars, but of course, commodities are typically priced in US dollars. So what, what's happening with US dollars is particularly relevant for, for everyone around the world. And what the Fed is doing is extremely important for everyone around the world as well. So as you say, um, the Fed is a, a large focus for global investors, but also Australian investors, given that many Australian companies have exposures offshore, particularly in the ASX 200. And uh, the focus has very much been on what the implications are of high inflation, rising interest rates on the US economy. So we like to say that the US Fed sets interest rates for the world. And what you'll find is, if you're an Australian, if you're a Canadian, if you're British, if you're European, many of the factors that have driven inflation higher and seen interest rates rise, um, they're factors that we're seeing in countries all over the world. So you have a synchronised global monetary policy tightening cycle, meaning all central banks are typically hiking interest rates at the same time. And uh, of course, the dominant central bank, the main central bank is the, the US Fed. So uh, as an Australian, investing in Australia, you have to be highly cognizant of what's going on offshore. I mean, at the end of the day, we're a small open economy. We punch well above our weight in terms of how large our economy is relative to our population size. I think we're around the 15th largest economy in the world, but our stock market is 1.6% of the global stock market. So. Um, there's a raft of opportunities that exist outside of Australia. And of course, what you find is that the most dominant companies in the US and the world by market capitalization, those big mega cap tech behemoths, they just so happen to be very exposed to a global tightening rate cycle um, and higher interest rates as well. So the focus very much has been from, from global investors, where is inflation going? What are the implications of rising wage growth? What are the implications of high commodity prices? And of course, the war in Ukraine has contributed to geopolitical uncertainty as well. Uh, and uh, trying to, to factor all these into a short-term economic forecast has been particularly challenging. Whether you're a central bank with 100 PhDs employed um, at your service, whether you're a professional financial economic forecaster, or whether you're a, a mum or dad investor, 
Um, I don't think that, it, that anyone has had any sort of edge in predicting what is going on at the moment. Now, for a long time, post, uh, well, for 40 years, interest rates have fallen. Um, you, you can cast your mind back to the, the 80s, for example, and uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners will tell you stories about uh, paying double-digit mortgage rates. And uh, we've lived through an, an extraordinary period of globalisation and, and deflationary forces. And it now looks like some of those forces have come to a natural end and we're starting to see a reversal of that. And we've also seen, of course, the rise of China as a source of growth in the global economy. And it looks like the Chinese economy is slowing as well um, from those very, very double digit rates of economic growth year on year to potentially closer to, to four or 5%. Still a very large number, but um, on some measures, the Chinese economy is the largest in the world. So we have a, a in an increasingly financialized and globalized world, we have a very strong interest in understanding what the cost of capital is. And uh, at this point in time, uh, we're living through an, an environment where, where many of the secular forces that have driven down inflation, driven down interest rates, resulted in rising asset prices. Potentially some of those forces are beginning to reverse, which means that for a long time, central banks have uh, had your back in terms of if you started to see equity markets decline, then the, the Fed, the so-called Fed put, which is um, the Fed would respond by reducing interest rates. Well, it's been a very, very painful lesson for investors to learn that central banks don't exist to backstop risk assets. Indeed, the reason they exist is to keep inflation low and stable. And we think that uh, the actions that central banks are undertaking today, whether it's the Fed, whether it's the RBA, they're setting equity markets up for a strong period of growth over the medium to long term. I would be far more concerned if we were seeing an environment where central banks weren't responding to the types of inflation levels we're seeing around the world. Whether it's in Australia, it's expected that inflation will peak at 8% uh, in this quarter, whether it's in the US or the UK, double digit rates of inflation, central banks are doing absolutely the right thing. And we're starting to experience a, a bit of a hangover in that from risk assets. But I think it's really setting us up for a fertile period of growth over the medium to long term, which is where you know investors should really be thinking about when they're when they're investing for to meet their long-term investment and savings goals. Oh, that's super interesting. You are most definitely the first person whom I've spoken to publicly anyway, who said this is necessary and it's going to set us up for a better future. Most people are very much looking at the uh, the short-term implications and kind of feeling the pain. One big concern, I'm going to ask you about this and then we're going to start talking about what to do about it. One big concern in the US, you know, there's all of this talk about recession. At the moment, the consumer is still relatively strong. And company earnings are holding up relatively well. We've just had reporting season in the US, which is quarterly, so they're pretty frequent compared to Australia. If recession eventuates to the extent that pundits are talking about, and it's talked about all the time now, it's headlines in the newspaper daily, not just the financial press either, are you concerned about falling earnings now that we've seen sort of a real compression and the multiples people are willing to pay for risk assets? Yeah, I mean, the thing to remember, Gemma, 
with you know the focus has very much been on interest rates for the first half of this year, um, and the back end of this year is very much focused on uh, how deep or how likely a recession might be. I mean, for me, that's a, a bit of a distraction um, from from what is truly going on. You know, whether we face a recession or not. I mean, Australia avoided a recession for 30 years, and then obviously we had one as a result um, of COVID um, and, and the policies that were implemented by the government to address that health crisis. But uh, markets are forward-looking, so markets will factor in uh, any decline in earnings or, or any pessimism in the growth outlook. Uh, markets will move far before you start to see um, the growth figures deteriorate or leading indicators um, in economic variables start to turn. So absolutely, uh, the, the next shooter drop is potentially declining earnings. We've seen that already in some bellwethers of the, um, the share market. So to give you an example, uh, consumer apparel names, uh, some names that uh, are very familiar to Australian investors, Nike, Under Armour, Puma, Adidas, Lululemon. Um, they've been reporting uh, for the last couple of quarters, they've been reporting that uh, inventory levels have been building up significantly. So I'm talking about between 70, 80, 90% year on year inventory buildup, a combination of these companies ordering too much um, inventory as a result of very, very strong demand. Um, you know, Aussies weren't alone in lockdown in um, purchasing items online. Um, and particularly if you consider that we all had to stay in Sydney, we all had to stay within 5K radius. A lot of, uh, a lot of Aussies, a lot of Sydney siders at least, bought a new pair of shoes and some workout kit um, to, to run around their, their local LGA. So um, that happened on a global scale. Companies responded and uh, they built up too much inventory. And you've also seen uh, consumers really tighten their belts as a result of higher interest rates, concern over the economic outlook, falling house prices, uh, and a cost of living crisis if you're thinking about high inflation, but also rising mortgage prices as well. So um, you've seen those shares of those companies down between 16 and 90% this year, and it's been the COVID winners that have been particularly hard hit. Another good example, Peloton down 90% from the, the COVID level highs. So many of those COVID winners have been hit particularly hard. Uh, companies in consumer discretionary, uh, some of those apparel names that I mentioned earlier, act as bellwethers for uh, the economy um, and uh, the market's already moved, as I mentioned. Um, so we've seen earnings downgraded. We've seen many of uh, those um, PE ratios normalized to more attractive levels. And the key now for investors is to sort the wheat from the chaff. And um, as you know, at Firetrail, we're active investment managers. It means you know, we believe that we can outperform the market by doing the homework on these companies, by doing the necessary due diligence required to uh, assess these companies and their outlook on a five-year forward-looking basis. We don't think that now is the time to be piling into ETF or passive ETF style strategies where you, you own absolutely everything because there's a lot of companies that are going to find the operating environment, as I mentioned, for the next five years, they're gonna find it very different to the last five years. Um, and in a world where interest rates are likely to be permanently higher, 
we're not going back to those ultra low emergency type levels of, of interest rates, then many of these companies are going to find it far more difficult. We don't think you should be owning those companies. Um, so instead, in, in any, in any uh, market, there are going to be winners. You should be focusing your time on trying to identify those winners. Well, you've led so nicely into the next question, which was how do you, in this environment, to look through all of those challenges, you know, it's really tempting to batten down the hatches. And when I talk about what our investors are doing, quite a lot of them have battened down the hatches, to be frank. They are trading in pockets of the ASX specifically where they can still see a lot of opportunity, but everything else, they're just leaving it alone. For you guys where that's that's not your role, right? Where are you looking? No, I mean, we're professional investors uh, and investors pay us a fee to generate returns over and above an index. Um, and that's what we focus on. That's what we do day in, day out. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are areas of the global equity market and Australian equity market that have performed particularly well for investors. So it's a matter of uh, thinking more creatively. We think you should be looking at companies that are under-researched, that are misunderstood, um, that are trading at cheap valuations or, or lower valuations and with the potential to upgrade earnings um, within the next three to five years as uh, what you'll find as an investor is that share prices follow earnings. Now at Firetrail, we don't build up cash levels. So if investors are paying us a fee to gain exposure to global equities, then we're not going to sit in cash on you. Indeed, from our experience, we've been investing in a manner of high conviction and concentration, um, concentrated portfolios, meaning you know, between 25 to 35 companies in our portfolios. We've been investing in this way for over 17 years. And one of the most difficult decisions you can make as an investor is trying to time the market. It's a very, very dangerous activity. Um, bottom picking is a very, very difficult thing to do. You might get it right once, um, but it's very difficult to get it um, right consecutively, particularly in volatile environments. And there are many studies that show, um, firstly, what really matters is time in the market. So by extending your time horizon, you're increasing the likelihood of having a positive experience by investing in, in the equity market, but also you miss out on some of the best days. Um, so some of the best days in the market, they occur when things go from bad to less bad. Um, and if you're waiting for confirmation of a particular uptrend in either the market or a particular, or a particular company's share price, you've probably missed the best, actually the best returns that were on offer. And by missing some of the best days in the, in the market, you're actually halving or potentially reducing significantly your total return outcome. So we don't, you know, we're, we're professional investment managers. We're not going to build up cash on you. Um, we're simply going to look for the best opportunities in the marketplace, whether they are growth companies, whether they are value companies, um, and build a, a high conviction concentrated portfolio by uh, getting to know these companies intimately, meeting company management, meeting their competitors, meeting ex-employees, doing all the necessary financial modelling, stress testing that financial modelling and putting a huge amount, over 200 hours of research into 
understanding that company before it's even proposed to our investment committee. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. So very often, as I mentioned in global equities, uh, if I mention uh, Apple, if I mention Microsoft, if I mention Facebook or Meta, these names resonate with Australian investors. But it's those mega cap tech names that too often dominate the headlines. Um, and in particular, as a result of the earnings season that we've just experienced, uh, Meta fell 20% in a day. Amazon had similar type levels. And Meta or Facebook, um, for your listeners, is down 75% year to date. Now, an example of a, an opportunity that we have in the fund today is a company called Archer Daniels Midland. Not many Australians, I, I imagine, would have heard of ADM. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It has a market cap of $48 billion. So in, if it was listed on the ASX, it would be probably a top two or three company, uh, maybe fourth. Um, but it's actually uh, a soybean or, or one of the world's agricultural behemoths. Um, and it really, in terms of its exposure to commodities, um, soybean is one of the, the key commodities that it um, buys off agricultural producers. It takes those soybeans, crushes them. The soybean meal is used to feed, to feed agricultural herds and the oil is used to make renewable um, fuel. So 48 billion trades on a PE of 13 times. It's got free cash flow of 6% and it's up 42% this year in, a, in what is a bear market um, in global equities. Now, the reason it's up, you know, what we like to focus on at Firetrail is truly what matters for a company. First is there is huge demand for soybean meal internationally. A soybean has around 30% protein content, which uh, compared to wheat or rice has next to nothing. Uh, so you're finding huge demand from uh, farmers in particular, um, the Chinese who are building up their hog stocks after the, the swine flu devastated their, um, their herds uh, a couple of years ago. So they're rebuilding them, uh, restocking them. Uh, and in particular, because wheat prices are so high, they're focusing on purchasing soybean meal. Uh, so strong demand there. Strong demand because uh, consumer preferences are changing. Um, whether you are looking at uh, plant-based alternatives to meat, uh, soybean is a key ingredient in that. Gemma, I watched that, that documentary, The Game Changers, and I went vegan for about two weeks. And uh, I can tell you, you go down to Woolies or Coles, there's a huge, there's a huge selection for anyone that wants to um, purchase plant-based alternatives to meat. Um, I will say this, though, the kids didn't fall for the plant-based chicken nuggets, so don't bother with, with that. Um, but increasingly, you're finding companies are innovating in producing these types of products for changing consumer preferences. So that's a very strong demand for soybeans there. And, and the oil, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so renewable energy, renewable fuel has um, significant subsidies in the US Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed to the tune of a dollar a gallon for renewable diesel and a dollar 60 a gallon for renewable aviation fuel. The attractiveness there um, for a product like renewable diesel is that through the life cycle of the product, it has 90% fewer carbon emissions than petrol diesel. And uh, depending on the type of vehicle you're driving, between 60 and 90% less greenhouse gas emissions. So very strong demand 
for that product, which is renewable fuel. So with all these structural uh, forces in play, the CEO came out um, last week saying the company is firing on all cylinders and they expect demand and conditions to remain favourable for the remainder of the year and into 2023. So there are many of these companies that are that uh, exist uh, in the global equity landscape um, that offer the potential for outsized returns and are benefiting from some of those structural tailwinds. So uh, even though yeah, the, the market is falling and it grabs all the headlines and a certain sector within the, uh, the market grabs most of the headlines, there is a huge plethora of opportunities outside of those companies that uh, investors should be cognizant of, do their due diligence and potentially gain exposure to. I love that example. And I love your example of going vegan for two weeks. My <laughs> my child decided to become a vegetarian once he worked out where meat came from. And we kind of knew it was coming. He's a sensitive kid. Uh but then he discovered the term flexitarian and he's very happy as a flexitarian. <laughs> and he could have sausage rolls and a couple of other things that he quite liked. He Excellent. also didn't go for some of the uh, the plant-based alternatives. Excellent. Didn't, didn't love the taste options. So one area you guys have said you're spending a lot of time on is sustainability. You've really just given one great example. Where else are you looking to incorporate that into your portfolios. I'm conscious it's such a hot topic in so many ways, but I'm also very conscious a lot of our investors don't uh, really struggle with sustainability as a concept and ESG frameworks. They're quite complex. They don't always agree with all of the elements and so on. How do you guys think about it? Yeah, uh, I think that's very fair, Gemma. Um, Particularly if you say sustainability uh, to an investor, it probably means different things to different people. Um, And this is where you get this cliche that there are many shades of green. So, I mean, at Firetrail, I I mentioned we build high conviction portfolios, we build concentrated portfolios, we build portfolios that are very, very different both to our competitors, but also an equity market index. And uh, one dominant investment thematic that is likely to continue to sway investment markets is the rise of sustainable investing. So over $30 trillion is managed in mutual funds today with some sort of ESG incorporation in the investment process uh, or some sort of ESG um, process in mind. And then that's expected to grow to over $60 trillion Uh, dollars, US dollars, over the course of the next five years. And we've really seen the growth in sustainable or ESG investing driven by institutional investors, um, first and foremost. So I'm talking about large sovereign wealth funds like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, for example. I'm sure um, many of your listeners are familiar with uh, the Australian superannuation funds as well, um, very much committing to, to net zero, but also say not investing in fossil fuels, for example, um, or or companies that produce weapons or tobacco. And then you have um, not only uh, the super funds, sovereign wealth funds, but increasingly on the environmental side, it's very evident, um, particularly to Australian investors, 
that you know the, the climate is changing. Um, whether I'm talking about floods that are meant to occur in one in a thousand years, occurring multiple times a year, whether I'm talking about the bushfires that we experience, whether I'm talking about the health issues around around COVID, you know, certainly I think that the climate impact um, and the ramifications of that is really hitting home um, to Australian investors as well. So we've seen this investment trend occur um, over a, a couple of decades now, and it is growing in momentum. And at Biotrail, uh, we we put a lot and a lot of work into understanding what the implications of that are for uh, investors and capital markets. So what we developed at Firetrail after three years of um, research and development was a global equity fund that's concentrated, that's high conviction, following that process that we've implemented in Australia for over 17 years, both at our time at Macquarie and at Firetrail. Um, but the difference for the global equity fund, um, S3GO, so the Firetrail S3 Global Opportunities Fund, is that we incorporate a sustainability perspective. And we think it's a really pragmatic approach to sustainability that resonates with a lot of our investors and advisors throughout Australia. Um, we think sustainability is an investment opportunity. It's a huge investment opportunity rather than simply a risk to be managed via backward-looking uh, ESG ratings or backward-looking metrics. So we're looking forward. Um, we're looking at companies that are part of the solution to many of the greatest challenges that the world faces today rather than part of the problem. And we believe that you give absolutely nothing up by incorporating sustainability and looking for the ESG improvers in the, in the equity landscape um, in terms of investment performance. So meeting your long-term investment goals and savings goals, um, investing in a responsible way, um, but giving absolutely nothing up to do so. And that's the big criticism of sustainable investing, that for too long you are overexposed to mega cap growth names that score well because they don't emit high levels of carbon and your underweight um, value names like mining companies, um, which are producing many of the commodities required to decarbonize and to reach the, the lofty ambitions of governments, regulators, but also investors in terms of carbon emissions. Um, but they're typically screened out on backward looking formulas and rules-based investing because they have a high level of carbon emissions. So we, we own a copper miner in our fund, for example. We take a far more pragmatic approach to sustainability. We're bullish on the copper price. Um, and the copper miner we own is a, a company listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange called First Quantum, but 80% of their operations are, are fueled by renewable energy sources, and they've committed to cutting their uh, carbon dioxide emissions by 50% over the course of the next five years as well. So there's simply just, there's no decarbonisation effort without copper. We think it makes no sense to starve these companies of capital when they need it to decarbonise their own or lower the carbon footprint of their own operations. And indeed, if we don't own these companies, then you may leave them to the bad investors, the bad actors that simply want to, you know, uh, generate you know, huge, huge profits and be damned the consequences for the environment, for example. So um, we want to, the reason we run concentrated portfolios is it maximizes our ability to generate investment performance for our clients first and foremost, but it also enables us 
to interact and uh, engage with uh, a select number of companies to improve their operations. And when the market recognizes the contribution these companies are making to positive change in the world, you start to see investors become increasingly attracted to that company and uh, the share price begin to appreciate. So that's our approach to sustainability. Uh, we think that it makes a lot of sense. Um, we think that by identifying these companies early on in their positive change journey, these companies might be misunderstood, they might be miscategorized, they're under-researched. Um, we think it, it stands a, a good likelihood of success of outperforming the market over the medium term, which we categorize as three to five years. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. One of the more fascinating presentations I've been to uh, was one where the speaker broke down the metrics to be considered a green stock versus not a green stock. It was exactly as you say, uh, Elon Musk has complained many times that Tesla will be screened out because making cars is not exactly a low energy activity. And yet, you know, massive tech company will be uh, will be screened in. So you end up with this sort of very concentrated view of the world. Now, you've promised us the greatest companies you've never heard of, which sounds extremely cool. Can you tell us one more before we go? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me think. Uh, so we, you know, I often uh, show, uh, I open up the portfolio to investors and advisors and I ask them how many companies they recognise. And I typically get two or three out of the, the 27 that we own. Um, and uh, what I like to tell them is, you know, the, the median market cap in the portfolio is around 30 billion Aussie. So you're talking about a top 15 ASX 200 company. These aren't small companies. Um, and indeed, many of the companies, uh, they are, are simply business models and sectors that don't necessarily exist in Australia. So they provide the, the benefit of diversification to an Australian equity portfolio as well. And I guess the great thing about having an active ETF like uh, S3GO on the ASX is you can get access to, to these companies just through that one trade via the ASX. You don't necessarily have to go out and, and try and understand uh, and, and do that sort of deep dive research that we produce, but um, it is an attractive way for Australian investors to build diversification into their portfolios, um, particularly if they want exposure to international shares. So um, I'd, I'll, I'll be interested, Gemma, if you know some of these companies. So what about Alstom? Have you ever heard of Alstom? No, I don't think so. Alstom produced mm. the trams and trains in Victoria. Um, oh, goodness. Yeah. Okay. So some people will know that one. I don't know. Yeah. Alstom's a French train manufacturer um, and it's one of the market leaders um, in that space. It has 80 billion euros uh, backlog in, in projects and that's two times its closest peer um, in the sector. And, you know, the reason we like Alstom is not only are they executing on that 80 billion euros backlog um, of projects that they've got, but there's huge ESG-driven support for, for rail investment. Uh, you know, uh, airlines, for example, are one of the largest carbon emitters globally, which is why you're seeing a, a large focus of renewable aviation fuel. But uh, uh, particularly in places, uh, not Australia, our landmass is too large. Um, we haven't built that sort of rail infrastructure, particularly high speed. 
But uh, in places like Europe, you know, there's huge support um, for investment in rail, and Alstom do do everything there, uh, whether it's producing the rain, uh, producing the trains, um, the signalling, the tracks, um, and that's a really supportive backdrop for Alstom going forward. So they're again one of the world's uh, leaders in train manufacturing. Another really interesting company that I have for you is um, uh, a, a good one, I suppose, is uh, Micron Technology. Have you heard of Micron? Probably have. Yes. No? yes, yes, I've got yeah, that one. Makes memory chips, uh, so semiconductors. Um, what we like about semiconductors, again, you find that the share price of um, whether it's Taiwan Semiconductor or Micron, you know, they've been hit hard this year as the chip cycle has turned, um, but the semiconductor chip cycle is typically very fast. So what you find is the market tightens up 12 to 18 months after um, supply is restricted. It's a healthy oligopoly, um, the semiconductor um, space, and Micron's one of the leaders there. So you've got semiconductors in cars, electronics, consumer pro communication products, servers, computers. They're even in coffee machines these days. And, uh, for example, an EV requires $750 worth of memory chips per car. Um, so we're quite bullish um, on semiconductors and microchips. We have exposure to Micron and Taiwan Semiconductor. I'm sure everyone's heard of Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, but another great name in the portfolio um, that you might not have heard of before is a company called Weyerhaeuser. Have you heard of Weyerhaeuser, Gemma? I probably need you to spell it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Weyerhaeuser. Um, yeah, so it's uh, over 120 years old and it's the largest private landowner of forests in North America. Um, it, it owns 11 million acres of forests in the Pacific Northwest, South and South of the US. It also has a lease on 14 million acres in Canada. Um, so it's a lumber company. It cuts down trees every year to produce building materials and paper products. But um, the really exciting opportunity for Weyerhaeuser is as the largest private landowner of forests, those forests suck in over 35 million tonnes of carbon every year. So um, Weyerhaeuser is exploring the opportunity and has begun to sell carbon credits into the US carbon market. So if we're to meet our decarbonisation ambitions, it's simply the case that companies that have a positive carbon profile are going to have to buy carbon credits off companies like Weyerhaeuser that have a negative carbon profile. Now, we think that when the carbon price in the US reaches $25 a tonne, Weyerhaeuser has a really interesting decision to make as a business. Do they keep cutting down the trees for lumber and timber and paper or do they keep the trees in the ground and sell carbon credits on them? Um, so it's actually going to be more um, economically beneficial for Weyerhaeuser to keep the trees in the ground and sell carbon credits. So there, this is a 120-year-old company that is building a new business, responding to some of the changes that we're seeing in the global economy in terms of putting a price on carbon um, to enable us to, to try and meet those net zero ambitions for carbon emissions. So a uh, really, really interesting there for Weyerhaeuser. Uh, again, it's a timber REIT, so typically doesn't find its way into many global equity portfolios. Um, but we think that when this opportunity is recognised by the market and when you start to see earnings uplift as a result of this new business, that's when you start to see the share price appreciate. And when we talk to company management, you know, they're lumberjacks. They're astounded that they, they can make money 
from stopping doing what they've been doing. Um, and they call it mailbox money. They get sent money in the mail um, on the carbon credits that they that they sell into the market. And this is a, an opportunity that they're exploring. They're so serious about it. They move their CFO over to the division responsible for uh, monetizing that opportunity. So we think this in general, in terms of uh, the way that we look at the world, we look at companies, we see where they are on the positive change journey. If they're early on, um, we, we typically the portfolio is overweight, um, what we call future leaders in positive change, as these represent the really significant opportunities. And uh, we, we wait uh, typically between three and five years for um, the market to recognize that opportunity. And that's when you get the really significant uplift in the share price. One that, you know, these are opportunities that we seek to monetize for our investors and our clients, help them meet their, their long-term savings and investment goals. Anthony, I love that last story. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to hear it before, but you're a prolific commentator. You guys produce series of insights and people can hear you speak in many ways, many times. Where can people go to find out more about you guys and what you're doing? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Gemma. You know, we put a big focus on um, the work that we do, uh, being transparent and communicating that to investors and our clients. So obviously uh, the best place is firetrail.com. Um, you can go on there. Uh, we have uh, my fund, the Firetrail S3 Global Opportunities Fund, we also run high conviction portfolios in Australian equities, small caps, um, and we also have a hedge fund called the uh, Firetrail Absolute Return Fund as well, a market neutral fund. Um, so you can go on there to find more information about the funds. But then in terms of insights, um, you can sign up to receive a weekly email, uh, a lighthearted look at what caught our attention this week. Um, and you'll also see a two minute video from uh, myself or one of my colleagues where we talk about a chart um, that, that we found particularly interesting. Um, we did a Halloween special a couple of weeks ago where we dressed up and things like that. So more of a lighthearted look, but um, we think it's quite interesting and informative. Um, of course, we encourage people to connect with us on LinkedIn. That would be great if you connect to Firetrail um, or myself. Um, we, we regularly post on LinkedIn probably once a day. We're also on Twitter as well. So at Firetrail team, uh, I'm also on there as well, uh, at Doyle AUD on Twitter. Um, so you can follow myself or Elon that you mentioned earlier um, uh, and we can connect there. Um, it would be really great if you, um, if you connect with us. We love chatting to investors and clients. And uh, certainly, you know, it, it's, uh, it really encourages us. You know, we're, we're heavily aligned with our clients and we want to do a good job for them as well. So it'd be great if you could um, connect uh, on one of those mediums. Anthony Doyle from Firetrail, thanks so much for joining us today. Cheers, Gemma. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions and thought for future topics. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. 
To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.